You're listening to You've Been Hanked, hosted by Hank Griffin, writer, man of faith, Parkinson's warrior, traveling man, and storyteller. Wonderful stories, home cooking, thoughtful lessons, and candor about life with Parkinson's are his to share. Relax for the next several minutes with your friend, neighbor, and brother who loves you. Hello everyone, Hank here. Thanks for joining me for this episode of You've Been Hanked. It's a special episode. It's going to be a little longer. Let's go for a walk. Let's go for a drive. Let's get some chores done together. And as we do so, I want you to begin to better understand who I am. I'd love to better understand who you are. Talk to me a little bit about that in the comments. We're going to talk today about one of the best human beings that I've ever known. One of the best men ever to walk the earth is my great uncle Carl. He's one of the pillars of my youth and one of the foundations upon which I have built my own adulthood, my own personal example of manhood and being the person that I am today. You'll hear, if you listen carefully, strains of faith, hope, and charity woven throughout the tapestry of this episode of You've Been Hanked. Thanks so much for being here. I hope you'll stick with me to the end. Let's do some things together today. Here we go. When I was a boy, I was real blessed. My great-uncle Carl lived on his farm. He'd had that farm. He bought it in 56. It's 100 years old when he bought it. It's a wonderful place for a boy to spend as much time as humanly possible. And in doing so, he spent it in the best possible company. What a good man he was. Old when I was born. He was 60 that year. I realized that one, 60 is not as old as it used to be. And two, who do you think you are calling 60 old? Look, y'all, I'm getting on up there myself, so cut me a little slack here. When I was a little boy, Uncle Carl seemed as old as the hills, as old as the stars. And my goodness, I just admired him so much. And so for me to refer to him as old is not discourtesy. It's the truth from the perspective of the boy that I was. He was an astonishingly good person, good man. His example in every conceivable way was worthy of emulation, except that he was a smoker. <laughs> in those days, everybody was a smoker, just about. I was a little Mormon boy. Now I'm an aging Mormon man. We're not supposed to say Mormon anymore, I don't think. I, th I think what they want us to say now is member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I'm an old dog, and I'm willing to learn new tricks, but I'm slow. I'm like a coal-burning train. You see, I generally do get up the mountain, but after all the diesels and the electrics, I'm just happy to get there and eventually find myself in good company. So look, to all my Latter-day Saint friends, I know some of y'all are listening, don't. Don't be mad at me. I, well, it's going to be okay. He smoked. My goodness. Two packs a day. Cool menthol 120s. I'm not doing an ad for cool cigarettes, but that's what he smoked. When he was a boy, he sucked salt. He grew up on a cotton farm in Hughes County, Oklahoma. And there wasn't a lot of distraction out there. Very wonderfully rule, and in those days it was like a whole different world kind of rule. And as a diversion, he'd get a 
piece of rock salt the size of his thumb and he'd stick that in his lip and he'd suck on it and it was just dehydrating him terribly and his dad didn't know what was wrong with him he loaded him up on the buckboard not not a car not not a vehicle uh, in the motorized sense it was a buckboard with horses or a mule took him into town took him to the doctor the doctor this would have been about 1922 in very rural Hughes County, Oklahoma. And the doctor said, don't worry, Mr. Griffin. He's talking to my great-grandfather. Don't worry, Mr. Griffin. He'll be fine. He's just sucking salt and it's got him dehydrated. Here's what you do. You just go down to the dry goods store and get him a square of tobacco. Let him chew that. It'll be fine. It's He'll leave the salt alone. And the doctor was right. He knew exactly what he's talking about in that he would you know, develop an addiction to tobacco and would care less about the salt. But, you know, 1922, we, we still believed that smoking was healthy well into the, what the, you know, the, the average person, certainly into the sixties, maybe into the seventies. And then people like uncle Carl was pretty sure they was lying when they put those warnings on the cigarette labels. Anyway, he smoked. Otherwise, Perfect. Good man. Great man. My great uncle. Grandfather's brother. Cotton farmer. Got called to serve his country in the Second World War. Went and fought the Japanese in the South Pacific, South Pacific Theater. I love to hear his stories. They were never cruel, never unkind. He focused more on things other than the fighting. Had pictures, wonderful pictures. I have his pictures now. Wonderful photographs. And he spent his time with me. You know, if somebody loves you, based on how they spend their time with you, you can say you love somebody, and that's fine. That's 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 nice. But if you're not willing to invest your time in them, you may need to reevaluate. Uncle Carl was generous with this time. I think he was lonely. He was a old man who lived by himself. He didn't marry. He didn't have any children. He had the opportunity to, but was convinced not to do it. And I, you know what? We'll hold off on that. That's, that's a whole other podcast. So bless his heart. He was out there all by himself, and he loved it when my brothers and I would come and spend time with him. He made us, very welcome. And we spent most weekends with him from Friday after school got out until Sunday in the afternoon or evening. We'd spend as much time there as possible. He was a, a delightfully safe harbor in a world that could be cruel. Good man. Drank coffee, hot, black cooked it on the stove in a percolator for most of my life. In later years, he used his green stamps, his S&H green stamps, to buy a Mr. Coffee coffee maker, had it on the TV stand under the TV, would get up first thing in the morning, and before he did anything else, even, well, anything else, he'd turn on that coffee pot. He's jonesing for that caffeine, and by the time he was settled down, that coffee would be ready, and he was ready for it. I tell you, 
coffee and cigarettes. Those were his vices. And he loved us boys, and we loved him. What a impression that old man made on me. Here I am. He's been, he's been dead for a long, long time. Twenty-seven years, I think. And he still plays on my mind every day. Haunts me like a beneficent ghost whispering the kindest things in my ear day and night. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful example and mentor and guide for a boy to have in his youth. He loved the guiding light and Dallas. If the guiding light was on or Dallas was on, it was in your interest not to talk. He loved to talk and tell stories and hear stories and laugh and joke and carry on as long as J.R., Sue Ellen, Jock, and Miss Ellie, or Roger and Holly, and, and that guy that played the two brothers, the twin brothers. One of them was the pretty wicked, wicked guy, and the other one was uh, a little fragile in his psyche and super nice. I, I can't remember his name, but I, frankly, I'm a little embarrassed that I can remember these characters. I didn't watch the show, but if you was at Uncle Carl's house at 2 o'clock, well, you was going to watch the guiding light. You was welcome to leave. I think sometimes he just assumed you did. But if you was going to stay, that's fine. Don't talk during the guiding light. Same thing during Dallas. One time we was sitting there on his couch. Dusty, dusty couch. He, his farm was sand. Now, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean there wasn't anything growing there. There was. It's wonderful, wonderful cropland for gardens and watermelons and cotton and clover and hay. The best hay is wonderful, wonderful land, but it's very sandy. And as a consequence, his house was dusty and he's, it's clean. It was clutter free, but it's dusty. And you'd sit down on a couch or on the chair and, and there was, that was dust. He'd vacuum it. Just, you know, he couldn't get ahead of it. Nobody held it against him. Everybody wanted to be around him. Had he been willing, he'd been surrounded by people all the time. But he's, he, he'd like to keep you at arm's length and, and maybe, frankly, um, much farther than that, unless you was in the inner circle like us boys were. He was reclusive and shy. He wasn't unkind. He wasn't mean. He wasn't selfish with his time. But he, he was painfully shy. We were sitting on that couch watching the guiding light. He was smoking a cool menthol 120. I started to say something, and he tried to ignore me, and I made the mistake of trying again. He said, you realize I'm watching my show, right? And I knew that, you know, I needed to hush up. I was trying to talk to him about the possibility of my serving a mission. I'm a Latter-day Saint, uh, among other things, also a, a Mason. My faith in my fraternity, like my family and my community, well, these are all components of my community, my family and my worship community, my fraternal community, my immediate neighbors, and, and then, you know, things go on from there. These are, these are all part of what's important to me, most important to me, and that is my community. You're a part of my community. And I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. I wanted to talk to him about the possibility of serving a mission. And I realized it wasn't the time. I was getting ready to go to Dallas. Mama was going to take me to buy a suit. I'd never been to a, a men's 
warehouse before. That's where we went back in the days when George Zimmer owned it. She came and picked me up and we drove the hour and a half or so to get there. And I was really impressed with the way that I was treated a little, a little shy with the measurements, but it was a new experience. It was a neat experience. I got my suits. I had saved much of the money that was needed to serve a mission. I don't know if y'all all know this or not. Certainly my Mormon friends know, but those of you who are not of the faith may not realize that there's an expectation that one not only serve the mission, but pay for his or her mission, or as much of it as can be paid for. I hadn't saved it all, but I'd, I'd saved a lot of it. And I sold all my worldly possessions to help fund as much of the rest as I could. I knew that my congregation would pitch in to help offset what little remained. I wanted to serve a mission. I'd wanted to serve one ever since I was a little boy. I remember being in primary. I, I didn't love primary. That's the uh, children's organization of the church. I didn't love primary, but I love this particular song. I hope they call me on a mission. I'd sing it for you, but <laughs> now I don't want to have to endure the, the, the awful price that I'm sure I would have to pay, which is to see my, my subscriber numbers drop precipitously, suddenly, uh, if I tried to sing you that lovely primary song. So I, I'm not going to subject either you to that or me to the that ultimate result, but it was a fun song, a lively song, and a sweet song, and it helped motivate me to want to serve all the more. Uncle Carl was had begun acting funny. I remember one day I came home from work, and Uncle Carl took me aside and he confided in me. Listen, I need to tell you something. Yeah, Uncle Carl, what is it? Well, I don't know how to say this, really. Well, just just tell me what it is. I, I got lost today. Well, what do you mean you got lost today? I was coming home from the uh, Piggly Wiggly and and I got lost. I I couldn't find my way home. I couldn't remember how to get home. Now, this was extremely alarming. Uncle Carl had been having some seemingly minor issues, very small things, you know, words that would, and names that would not come to him with the same ease that he was accustomed to, even in his uh, mid-70s. And he told me that he had to get out of the car and ask for directions, and he, he didn't even know where he was. Finally, he was able to get home. I, I don't know if he got home by himself or if he had help. I don't know. That's back in the days before cell phones. Good heavens, they that was science fiction in those days. I was really, really concerned about this extraordinary pillar of my youth. As I monitored the situation over the next few weeks, I realized that things were worse than I had understood. And he was not just getting older. He needed, he needed some medical attention. I took him to the doctor there in beautiful East Texas. 
and the doctor confirmed that, well, Mr. Griffin, you have Alzheimer's. It was a dreadful diagnosis. And I know that this is not new to probably even many of you, if any of you. I don't know that anybody's unaffected by it anymore. Somebody that we know and love has had it, does have it, or sadly will have it. It's a near universal experience anymore. I realized I was not going to be able to go on that mission. I wanted to. I had prepared to. Oh, I really wanted to. I talked to my stake president. That's uh, the ecclesiastical leader above the local bishop level. Think of it in terms of Catholicism as the head of a diocese and confided in him what was going on. And he said, Brother Griffin, this, this may be your mission. These days, the church has what they call service missions. You have proselytizing missions where people go out and they proselytize, knock on the doors. I'm sure that everybody here has had their door knocked on by a couple of Latter-day Saint missionaries, a couple of Mormon boys or Mormon girls, either to your delight or dismay or somewhere in between. And then there's service missions, and there's a wide-ranging series of opportunities for those who serve those kinds of missions. These days, that might be considered uh, unofficially, most likely, a service mission. In those days, it just meant that I didn't go on a mission. And <laughs> Well, that, that was a burden for me to deal with. And I have tried to explain over the years to people, and some people are very kind about it, and others are looking at me out of the side of their eyes a little bit, like, uh-huh, everybody's got an excuse, don't they? You know what everybody else has got? Elbows. You know what you all do with the elbows? Keep them covered up. They're crusty and rough. Nobody really needs to see them, do they? <laughs> all right, whatever. I took care of my Uncle Carl for 10 years as he went through the very stages of Alzheimer's right up until the very end. I fed him his last meal, spoonful at a time, I don't say this as a pat on the back, but rather as a mark of just how grateful I am for that opportunity, that sweet experience. Was it difficult? Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, it, it was. It was. But he had looked after me from the time I was about three and in some ways was still looking after me right up until... His death, all those years later, extraordinary man. When I say the best of men, I, I don't say it lightly. He really was. We were sitting on the couch. I'd mentioned the guiding light earlier. We were sitting on the couch watching the guiding light. This was a couple of years later, after the earlier experience of watching that soap opera that I referred to. And there he was, sitting in front of his fan. He had a box fan. He had, he didn't have any air conditioning. He didn't have any insulation in his house. It was just hot or it was cold. And if it was cold, he had a, had a propane heater. And if it was hot, he had that box fan and, and, you know, sweat. That 
That's it. Irrespective of the temperature, irrespective of the weather, he was, there was a couple of things that you could count on. Number one, he was going to be smoking them cool menthol 120s. Number two, he was going to be drinking hot, boiling black coffee. He didn't want to dilute it with anything that wasn't hot, boiling black coffee. He'd go out on the shredder. It'd be 114. That's not an exaggeration. It'd be 114 degrees. He'd be on that old Ford 4000. It didn't have any kind of shade or canopy over it. It certainly didn't have air conditioning or anything like it, except for the, the speed of the wind as you moved forward, brush hogging that 50 acres of his. And he had a, a one of them old Stanley thermoses and he'd get a, he'd cook a pot of coffee, boil a pot of coffee on his percolator on top of his ancient, probably dangerous to use because of its age, gas stove in his kitchen is secondhand before my parents were born. And after he percolated a fresh pot of coffee, he'd pour it up in that thermos and he'd put on his straw hat and his long sleeve shirt. And he had a stick that he'd carry with him and he'd go out there and he'd shred for hours, hours in that hot sun. It didn't matter what the temperature was. He was going to go out there and work and he was going to drink the hottest possible thing that he could drink. Uncle Carl, why, why do you do that? Keeps me cool. Well, I don't think that it does. Have you tried it? N no, sir. Well, then you don't know, do you? No. I, I, how do you argue with that? And anyway, we were sitting on that couch and he, he had this old blue mug. I, I want to say porcelain. I, was it porcelain? Pro probably not. I, now that I think about it, I don't even really know what porcelain is. I'm going to make a note of this to ask dearest love what porcelain is. I'm sure she'll tell me, but he had this blue coffee cup and it had the handle on the mug it had the handle on the side he'd had it for a long time uncle carl wasn't somebody to throw something away that wasn't really broken and trash and even if it was broken he might have a use for it you know he came up during the depression and he really was somebody that wanted to find a use for everything he didn't even throw away his wrapping paper that came on his gifts bless his heart he, it, it was just too pretty for him to throw away and it was a nice keepsake and he would very carefully get his his old two-blade case pocket knife out of his pocket and he'd take it out and make sure it was wiped off before he needed to cut the tape or the string or whatever was holding that wrapping paper in place and tissue paper and he'd take them both and he'd flatten them there on his dresser. He'd flatten them out real careful so as not to tear them or wrinkle them any more than they were and he'd fold them just so and he'd had a special drawer in that dresser and he'd open that dresser up and he'd put that wrapping paper in there with his other pieces of wrapping paper that he'd been keeping for two or three lifetimes by that time. Didn't like to throw things away. Anyway, this mug was blue. had been washed so many times. It, I mean, the, the paint or the dye or whatever it is that they used to, to color these things, it was still there, but it was faded and, and lined. And, uh, and in places it was less blue and, more green, or I think it was. I'm, frankly, I'm not real good with color, but I do know that where in my youth it had been solidly blue, by this time in my early 20s, it was certainly not solidly blue. It was blue and bluish and green and greenish, depending on where one looked on the mug. And he liked that mug. It was comfortable for him. And he had it there, and it was sitting on his 
TV tray. He had a TV tray that he liked to eat at when he was watching the guiding light, and he had his box fan on a rolling shelf, and that box fan was just for him. If you wanted to bring a fan, you were welcome to do so, but you would have to. It was BYOF. His fan was only big enough for him. You'd bring your own fan. Otherwise, well, you were just going to be hot, you know, to the to the point that, you know, the air wasn't just in gentle movement around you. It certainly wasn't going to be blowing right on you because, well, that's his fan. Bought it with his own S&H green stamps, didn't he? And his coffee cup was empty, and I kept waiting for him to get up and pour himself another cup, and I began to think maybe I ought to offer to go over there and get him another cup, because I, I knew he wanted one. He, he just would drink it cup after cup. And I looked over, and I noticed that his cigarette was in his right hand, in between his pointing finger and his middle finger. He had sort of a perpetual notch there, where, you know, over the course of seven decades of smoking, he was a regular place in his between his fingers for his cigarette. And that cigarette had burned down so far that the you know, there's a inch or inch and a half or more of ashes on there. He didn't usually do that. And I started to be worried, is he okay? Is he sleeping? Is he ain't dead, is he? And I looked over and he he was not asleep, and he thankfully wasn't dead. Uncle Carl, you all right? You want me to get you a refill on that cup of coffee? No, I don't want no coffee. And I knew something was wrong. I had never heard him say those words ever in my life. No, I don't want a cup of coffee. If you ever ask Uncle Carl, do you want a cup of coffee? Yeah, I want a cup of coffee. You may get you one or you want to get one. Yeah, he wanted some coffee. This was the first. I was probably 23. It's the first time in 23 years I'd ever heard the man say, no, I don't want a cup of coffee. As far as I was concerned, it was time to whip out the Bible and check in the book of Revelations because, well, I wasn't sure, but that might have been one of the seven signs that things was fixing to get hairy. And I mean, real quick, that old man liked his coffee. He had my undivided attention, Uncle Carl. You okay? And he wasn't okay. Hank. I'm, I'm losing my mind, aren't I? What? I heard what he said. I just wish that I hadn't. I said I'm, I'm losing my mind, aren't I? I'll never forget the experience of hearing that I, in in my youthful inexperience, I had never had somebody that older than me and that I had such respect for confide his or her vulnerability to me in that way. It was deeply moving, unsettling, and I didn't know how to respond. Uncle Carl, I... I don't know what to say to that. We sat there quietly, silently, except for the guiding light, which even he wasn't watching at this point. Uncle Carl, I, I know this. I love you. My, the whole family loves you. 
Your neighbors love you. No, they, they're just my neighbors. Yes, but they love you and you know it. Uncle Carl had always taught us and he, he demonstrated it every day. He said, if you want a neighbor, you've got to be a neighbor. It, it was something that echoed from the golden rule when the Savior said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uncle Carl believed that if you want a neighbor, if you want a good neighbor, then you have to be a good neighbor. He knew what I didn't yet understand, and and that was that a lot of times people just sort of give what they get, and if you give them bad stuff, they're going to give it back to you, and if you give them good stuff, they're going to give that back to you, and of course, that's not really how I want to live my life. I, I just want to try to love everybody. And sometimes I succeed at that and sometimes I don't, but, but that's what I try to do. I, I want to give not what I get, but rather what I hope to give, give what I hope to get is what I mean to say. I want to give what I hope to get and I'll keep giving it even if I don't get what I hope to get, because I think that we should be kind even to the unkind. And a lot of that came from my uncle Carl who really did live his philosophy of being a good neighbor. He didn't have much else to say about it. Uncle Carl was not a man of many words. And when he did speak, it was in one's interest to listen. Wise. I would say beyond his years, but I think he was perhaps wise in large part because of his years, of his experience and his great goodness. Where am I going with this? Recently, I was sitting in the parlor with beautiful woman, my, my sweetest love, heart's desire. I wasn't thinking in that moment of Uncle Carl. I was not thinking of the exchange we had, but I was thinking of my experience with Parkinson's. I've had it now for very nearly 20 years, just about our whole marriage. And I said aloud to sweetest love, it's not going to get any better, is it? I wondered what she would say. A lot of people say, oh, you're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. We're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. You'll see. You'll see. Thankfully, my bride is a woman of extraordinary integrity and wisdom and kindness. And she didn't lie to me that way. Rather, she said, no, it's not. It's going to get worse. And I'm going to be right here with you. And she is. She's always right here with me. I couldn't be more blessed in my spouse. I am married to the very best of women. I hope, gentlemen, that you feel that way about your spouses, just as I do mine. These things are subjective, of course. I hope that, like me, you consider yourself to be deeply and profoundly blessed in your, in your bride, in your spouse, in your dearest love. In the couple of years since she and I had that conversation, I have remembered pointedly and poignantly that exchange with Uncle Carl when he recognized that the Alzheimer's that he suffered from was not going to get any better. 
and that it was consuming him. But this isn't about complaining about Parkinson's. This is about candor and, frankly, hope and gratitude. That's, look, I, I have my rough moments, but more than anything else, I really feel so hopeful and blessed. Statistically, according to my movement disorder specialist, most people who have had it this long are in a wheelchair. I'm not. I'm so glad and thankful and grateful that I'm not in a wheelchair. I don't suffer from any cognitive decline. One of the benefits, if <laughs> ironically, one of the benefits of having early onset Parkinson's is that statistically you're much less likely to develop symptoms of dementia or other cognitive decline. Is it impossible? No, but it is much less likely. And my goodness, when Parkinson's win, you got to look for that silver lining. And, and that's a pretty bright silver lining in my estimation of things. And I'm not in a wheelchair and I can still shoot and love my wife and fight if I have to. And critically, I can walk. And my goodness, am I ever thankful to be able to walk. I think I'm going to go take a walk. Thank you all for spending a few extra minutes with me today. Much love. Hank, you've been hanked. Thanks for listening to You've Been Hanked. If you enjoyed today's episode, do us a favor. Like, share, subscribe, and comment. It's easy and really makes a difference. Please help Hank help others by increasing the reach of You've Been Hanked.